Uh, good morning. Thanks so much, Dan. Great to be with you. And just a quick word of thanks for your prayers for this last weekend. We had a great time in Argentina with Matias and Eduardo Boldain and their families. And the school in uh, Buenos Aires, really San Justo, is really an amazing work that God is doing down there. The building is uh, expanding, classroom space is expanded, and the students are uh, hungry. We had a great four days while I was there. Just prior to that, um, Mark Rag, as you know, the pastor at Saving Grace Bible, was there earlier in the week to teach the students in their studies. And by the time I arrived, um, he had them all warmed up. So it was great to, great to be there for four days. And we, we just went after it. We had multiple, multiple sessions and Q&As every day with these precious believers, these pastors and lay leaders and shepherds of the churches there, most of them in very impoverished areas and uh, using the tools that they have. And so it's a delightful work. We are constantly trying to get materials to them, translated into Spanish, and, uh, and see them equipped over the long haul. And so they're studying biblical languages, they're studying theology, and studying the scriptures at length and deeply. And they're a wonderful community of believers, and they love to honor the Lord. And they're thankful for your prayers for them. So if you're uh, keeping them on your prayer list regularly, that would be a blessing to them, I know, and a huge encouragement. And again, thank you. It was just a quick trip for me up and back, but had a, or down and back, really, um, but had a wonderful, wonderful time with them. I'm sure in the future we're going to see God doing some great things with the seminary there as they train men for uh, an area that really has very little um, by way of Bible exposition and that kind of level of training. So very excited about that. All right, take your Bibles. We still have one message to finish in the 16th chapter of Luke. So uh, take your Bibles and let's try to get there this morning. You remember we had been in this entire uh, subject of the Word of God and whether or not you believe it and, and what impact that has on your life. In fact, I titled this section, If You Won't Believe the Word, Then You Simply Won't Believe. And so this will be the fourth and final message in this, and I want to introduce it by asking this question. Why is it that when you give some of the most convincing facts from the texts of Scripture to an unbeliever, they still remain unconvinced? Why is that? I mean, the evidence for not only the miraculous in Scripture is so overwhelming, but also for the divine origin of Jesus Christ himself. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus of Nazareth was who he said he was. Not even the elite leaders of Israel, Jesus' own arch enemies, denied that he had the supernatural power to do astonishing miracles that defied nat the natural order. They weren't foolish enough to deny that he could do things no other mere mortal could do. He had power over nature. He could say to storms, end it, and immediately they would end. He had power over every kind of disease and genetic defects and illness of any kind, and he said, flee, and those things fled, and human flesh and muscle tissue was instantly restored without rehab, without anything, just right in front of people's very eyes, limbs renewed eyes opened that were blind. And he had power over one of the most frightening aspects of that particular culture at the time, and even some animistic cultures today, demon possession. He had power over the forces of darkness so that they did whatever he said they should do. These people had witnessed displays of obvious power which were beyond the natural world. But rather than the evidence convincing them of the truth, they accused Jesus of drawing his power from some evil source rather than from God. That was the common accusation as we saw back in the 11th chapter of Luke. And at one point, Jesus even used the blatant evidence of his power to heal as proof that he could do the thing you couldn't see, forgive sin. When he would say to someone, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees would mock and would chide him. Yeah, how do we know? What authority do you have to do that? And at one point, with a broken down man in front of him whose body was racked with paralysis, he said, which is easier? 
Luke 5 records it. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk to this, to this guy who's crippled? And he said, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He told the guy, rise up and walk, and he did. So there was evidence, blatant evidence, of his power to heal, and that became what Jesus says, the, the very thing that should shock you enough, should humble you enough to, to listen to what I'm saying about who I am. In other words, evidence could be an instrument that leads you to think about the truth in real faith. So why didn't everyone who saw these things suddenly fall to the ground in repentance and faith and worship him as Lord right then and there? Why didn't everyone do what Peter did when he witnessed the Lord telling a violent storm to cease? He said, Lord, depart from me. I am a wicked man. Immediate seeing of himself rightly before God. Or why didn't the entire multitudes believe in Jesus every time they saw with their own eyes a withered hand instantly restored or blind eyes opened or some dead brother walking out of a tomb to greet his sister? Or Mary Magdalene? I mean, why is it when she sees Jesus alive, she immediately knows and believes that it was truly her Lord and Master, while the leaders of Israel and countless others, unable to disprove the stunning miracle of his resurrection, simply wouldn't believe it. They just thought it was some unexplainable phenomenon. There's an underlying assumption at times in us, in, in our flesh, in the way we reason things out. This Underlying assumption that if people could witness with their own eyes and reasoning, then all their resistance would crumble and they'd embrace the gospel and be saved. That is the common assumption. And it is, just to summarize it, the assumption that unbelief is the result of not having seen enough convincing evidence. But that's the issue. Sometimes people who want to give evidence of these things, they, the intelligent design community, the creation scientists, and people like that, well-meaning as they might be, some of them, and, and an excellent study as it may be in those fields, sometimes they fall into that trap that if I can just get enough evidence in front of somebody, they, they, their, their resistance has to fall to the ground, inevitably. You know why we assume that? While convincing evidence is at times used by God as the initial instrument in the process of drawing someone to faith, God sometimes uses convincing evidence as sort of that way in which someone can be drawn to faith as God works on them by grace, such as happened in John 14. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves, Jesus said. Look, if you're not going to believe my words, at least start to be humbled by the power that's on display. It's also true that evidence seen with the eyes and taken in with our reasoning isn't what actually changes the heart, and there's the issue. Convincing evidence might be used by God as an initial humbling and attention getter, but, but the message itself is the issue. And without understanding the message by faith, there is no changing of the heart. As one writer said, while many people have been drawn to Christ through encountering the evidence for God from nature or from conscience or from scripture, the miraculous and other things, conversion is not a matter solely of intellectual assent. It isn't. The call to follow Jesus is not merely to logically believe certain facts, but to turn to God in repentance and faith and to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, James Edwards had an insightful way of looking at this. He said, there's a mistaken view abroad that if we only saw the undisputed miracles of Jesus, we would believe or believe more. The scribes, however, have seen precisely all such evidence, but they don't believe. Faith, in other words, is not an automatic or inevitable or necessary consequence of witnessing the acts of God. And then he says this, the words and deeds of Jesus are indeed evidence of God's presence. That's true. But the evidence demands a decision from the beholder as to its source and its significance. There it is, beloved, right there. Faith has to judge that the person and work of Jesus is in continuity with the character of God. That God is who he says he is and that Jesus is who he says he is. 
In order for it to have saving significance, it can't disbelieve the work of Jesus when he gives his work because it would be to disbelieve that Jesus claims to be God. The evidence presented may be used by God as an instrument to humble or to shock or to get your attention, but the beholder of the evidence has to believe the source. You have to. People saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb, but the Jews tried to kill him. Moses was an instrument through whom some of the most amazing miracles happened, and Israel saw them with their very eyes, and only days later they were worshiping a golden calf. Why is this? Because a fallen mind can witness miracles and still not be sufficiently humbled as to the spiritual reality of their condition before God. And in fact, without the grace of God to humble the proud heart, no amount of miraculous power displayed can shatter the stone that's there. The stony heart of fallen man is that heart. If you won't believe because you've become broken enough and humbled enough by your sin to listen to the truth with ears and eyes of faith, you will never believe. And we saw this as Jesus gave us this parable about that very issue. Now, you remember, he is confronting the Pharisees because they've read the law and the prophets over and over again, says the 16th verse. But it hasn't saved them. Why? Because the law and the prophets point to a reality they do not want to acknowledge. They cannot deny the miraculous power of Jesus. They wouldn't dare. It's foolish to do that. But it is also true that they will not accept what that power means. They will not make a determination in their heart by faith that it means he, his message is true, that he is who he says he is, that he is who Moses and the law proclaimed. That was the whole point. And so Jesus had given this little parable, this little story. And we saw it was the comparison between a wealthy man and this poor man, this impoverished man, Lazarus. And you remember, the story just basically sets them at odds. One, they had opposite lives on earth. The wealthy man loved his status. He habitually dressed in his luxury. He loved the luxury of it, joyously living in splendor every day. While the poor man, no earthly hope, he, his help was God. That's why Jesus gives him the name Lazarus. That means, God is my help. And he had no personal dignity, no physical comfort, and he was laid at the gate of the rich man's palace, so the story goes, and he was longing for just crumbs from this wealthy estate. He didn't even have any relief, relief except from some stray dogs in the area. But what is shocking about the story is that those are their two earthly lives and yet their destinies on the other side of the grave were completely opposite of what would be expected. Lazarus died in obscurity, no burial, the story says, but he was carried away or delivered to paradise by angels. The rich man died with the full fanfare of his earthly honor and yet he was sent to torment by God. The shocking destiny on the other side of the grave. How do we explain this? Well, that is what we come to here in this final look at this story. The unforeseen reversal is explained. Why this reversal of circumstances? Why this opposite way that these two men end up when the Pharisees would have expected it otherwise? You remember, wealth was a sign of God's favor to them. And, and poverty was a sign of the curse of God, and that's how they considered it. And they did that because of their greed, Jesus would tell them over and over again, their own lust for themselves, their own lust for power and the things of the world and their greed, but they were not listening. So the story unfolds the unforeseen reversal here and why, Jesus explains, why it happened that way. Notice, first of all, We'll begin in verse 23. The reality sets in. The reality sets in. In Hades, we saw last time that was just the place of the dead or the grave or the place of torment. Here, the context is torment, so it's got to be that general reference to hell. In judgment or punishment or hell, he, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in the heart of paradise with him. 
in his bosom is just a phrase which means in the heart of it. He has an intimate fellowship with paradise, with the covenant, with the father of the covenant, Abraham himself, with God. And so he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now, I, I, I find this ironic. I mean, let's, let's get some things clear here. It is not his lack of compassion itself that sent him to hell. Just the same way that humanitarianism doesn't save anyone. That's not why he's here, as we'll see in a moment. Nor is it the enjoyment of his wealth in this life that sent him to hell. Jesus never never had a problem with wealthy people or money itself. It was the love of money, as we've seen, that was the problem. Nor does poverty in this life secure your future in paradise. Some movements think that if you sell everything, get rid of it, and you just sort of live this impoverished life. Many, many gurus of religion do that around the world. They, they hurt themselves and cut themselves every year, and they live an impoverished life, thinking somehow they're purchasing their way to heaven. You can't purchase righteousness by giving everything up to sacrifice. Paul said that very thing in 1 Corinthians 13. You can do all that all you want. But without love for God and love for his people that's genuine, you're not, in, you're not part of God's kingdom. And notice that this guy knows why he's there. He doesn't complain that he's there, but his request is, is unique. First of all, it's outlandish. He's speaking to Abraham as if the father of our faith will consider someone who rejected faith all his life. So he's a Jew he calls him Father Abraham, so here Jesus is making the story to implicate the leaders of Israel. And how ironic, he asks for mercy when he gave none of it all his life. He never reflected the mercy of God on anyone. It was just all about him. And yet here he is asking for mercy, that's ironic. It's also a presumptuous request because he's asking it, he's asking it from Lazarus. Of all people, have Lazarus come. As if to have some personal connection to a former beggar who's now in heaven. I suppose in the story, Jesus implicates this rich guy by imagining that, that he might think Lazarus would put a good word in for him. After the grave, some friend putting a good word in for you. Listen, any religion that teaches that you can get a good word from someone who's already there for, to, to cover over your lawless deeds when you won't go through Christ is folly. And there you have it, the presumption of this man. So reality is starting to set in. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. He may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. He knows he can't get out of the flame, but he is looking for some relief in the imagery here. But verse 25 begins to explain why he's there. Because he had a heart set on the world rather than on his eternity or his soul. Abraham said, child. So again, affirming that this is the Jews that Jesus is trying to implicate here. Child, remember that during your life, you received your good things. What did he mean by that? Well, he can't mean that having good things sends a person to hell. That's never been the issue. No, he is, Jesus is saying, you wanted them more than eternal things. During your life, you received them. And how did he manifest his, his love of them? He cared nothing for anyone else and gloried in his earthly achievements, as we saw. He wanted them more than eternal things. He spent life consumed with this life. And his heart was to ignore life's lessons, even as he saw the destitution of another laid at his gate. It was not a lesson to him that this could be here today, gone tomorrow, which we're warned never to imagine. We're warned never to imagine that the riches we have today, the security we have in our home, the, the family heritage we have is enough of a security for you. You must face God on your own. You must face the gospel and the truth of faith in Christ on your own. You need a savior. Can't get in by some vicarious means. The lessons of life teach us that, and yet this man ignored the lessons all his life. The destitution of another never taught him to wonder and ask questions and be humbled. Which tells you he thought everything he had was his own. He was entitled to it. He earned it. It belonged to him. 
And he suppressed even the natural compassion of humanity, which is built into us from the image of God. And he lived in utter disregard of the needs of others. His selfishness went so far as to just trample anybody else's needs. I told you last time, 1 John writes, as a test of your Christianity, if you behold someone in need and you close off compassion in your heart toward people who have needs, if you don't have any compassion at all, how does the love of God dwell in you? And some people profess Christ and life to them is about entitlement. And they're just waiting for someone to to do something, to say something to them that that might obligate them. And I, I often think, what kind of a gospel did you believe that it doesn't stir up in you mercy and compassion beyond common grace? This guy trusted in what he had, trusted in the earth. He trusted in the temporary fulfillment of the world. He paid no attention to the condition of his soul. And he knew. He calls, Abraham calls him child. He's, he's putting the Pharisees, Jesus is, into the heart of this parable. And that's what makes this reversal of eternal destiny so offensive to the Jewish leaders. Man, as Abraham's descendants, they thought heaven was theirs by ethnicity, despite whatever mess they might make of their earthly lives. I get in because I'm already special. Well, as verse 26 indicates, it's too late for mercy. Abraham says, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. Those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. It's not suggesting that people in hell will, will have some longing and wish to be in heaven. They'll just long to be out of their torment. They're not saved. But it will be obvious to them why they're where they are, and, and obvious to them that this was the, the wrong way to live. Disastrous, actually. But he is suggesting in the parable that if anyone did wish to move, it's impossible. It's impossible. This life is the time. Now is the time when sinners are offered the truth and commanded to welcome it and receive it and entrust themselves to it. Now is the opportunity. It is in this life that you hear the revelation of Jesus Christ and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow him in repentance and faith as your savior and master. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Now is the time. Because once beyond your last breath, once you're through that threshold, what you trusted in here and now is what leads to our permanent place in eternity. Hebrews 9.27 says, once you go through that threshold, there is no second chance. There is no burning off your dead works in purgatory and finally being released into paradise. There is no false religion view of karma coming back as something better to redo. There is none of that. It is appointed unto men to live this life, then they die in this life, and they pass into the presence of their creator, and that is it. There is no second chance even at the bar of justice, for this life is proof of what you set your heart on. And so the first thing we see here is that the, the reversal is explained because the rich man trusted in this life. Now the second part of this and the final dynamic here, and what we want to focus our attention on, is, is where Jesus goes in this explanation of the reversal. To assume that evidence will inevitably save. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, you know, I'll... I'll you know, later on, when I, when I start thinking seriously about those things, I'll, I'll make my, my decision. On what basis? On what basis will you just suddenly, as you assess your life, and on your own and in your own power, make a judgment call that it's time to get serious about matters of your eternal soul? I mean, just think of the factors that you have to control. Number one, no one takes your life. Number one, no accident happens to you that threatens your last breath. You've you got to control all the, 
the circumstances, billions of contingencies in this life to stay alive on your own. That, that's what you'd have to imagine doing. And then you'd have to imagine a time when, when the season of sin you're in, the lawlessness you believe, the things you want from this life and are trusting in this life, that those things aren't going to overtake you. When the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that your heart is already bent in that direction, it's already in bondage to it, you wear the chains. How are you going to take them off? When you are loving the chains, you don't suddenly imagine that there's something better outside the chains. You love them. Why would you want to go away from the chains you love? That is the nature, beloved, of sin. To love sin is the issue in our fallenness. We are born loving it and hating the truth. Read John 3 right at the end. Those who come to the truth and run from it, they, they scatter because their deeds are evil and they don't want them exposed. No one comes to the truth without the grace of God exposing their sin condition and without them being crushed under it and coming to God for their only hope because they now see the chains for what they are. And if you love the chains... You're imagining a time when you're suddenly going to look at them on your own in your own power and say, well, I don't love them anymore. On, on what basis? You love them. You say, well, maybe the chains of my current life won't be fulfilling enough. And Well, you mean they're fulfilling now? What guarantee will there be that you'll suddenly see that they're empty? I mean, the only hope is time and God's kindness. That's the only hope. Yeah, the longer people live, the more they realize, oh, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this. You know, it would be a lot easier just to read Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes. Just read it. He had everything and all the money and power and freedom to do it. And he said at the end, trust me, you're chasing wind. Oh, but Solomon, you... You didn't get a chance to chase the wind I'm chasing. Really? You're going to be the one person on the earth who is fulfilled by the wind that you're chasing, and you're going to reverse everything Solomon did and said about it. And you're banking on a lot. Add to that that you, you might have this notion that you could be convinced if somebody could bring a, big, a good enough argument. They can just bring a good enough argument. To, to what? To your mind? To your assessment? So again, single yourself out. The rest of the world, uh, truth has stood the test of time. God is real. All of the evidence have been there. It's all been there. And besides, Roman one, Romans 1 says, built inside of you and in your mind is the ability to look at creation and see that there's an invisible God and your mind reasons itself to know there's someone to whom I'm going to be accountable. And it's nagging at you and has always been nagging at you. What is beyond the grave? Is there a God? Great philosophical questions always nagging you. That is built into you. And yet here's the problem. The scriptures also tell you that you love exalting yourself in the answers to those questions rather than God. So even the evidence that you can see and reasons you to God your moral life won't accept it, and so you suppress it. Nope, nope, it can't be God. Nope, there's no, it can't be accountability. Nope, there is no judgment. There is no hell. So what makes you think that if you had another sign of evidence, if you had another proof, another convincing this, that you would go beyond what the scriptures say and it would just be the real thing you needed to shove you over the edge? Notice verse 27 he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. First of all, notice that genuine faith doesn't come through being intellectually convinced by the evidence taken in and through your senses. This guy, the implication is that he had, he had all of the the work right in front of him and all of the Old Testament to read with all of the evidence of those miraculous acts of God 
Notice 20, verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded. What is happening here? Someone might say, how can I put my trust in what I hear if I've not been convinced by the evidence? There is the stumbling block. Evidence taken in with our reasoning and considered only with our moral assessment will always become suppressed. So if we're born with a hatred for the truth, just reason it out. We are darkened in our understanding, Romans 1, and our inner life at every level is hostile to the things of God, Romans 8. Then every bit of convincing evidence we see and witness for the truth will be deemed by us as other than God. We will just immediately dismiss it as not enough. That's because to receive and embrace the truth about God in Christ, we would have to have some things happen by the grace of God. We would have to die to self in that moment. We would have to turn from exalting our own view of spiritual realities in that moment. We would have to entrust our life and our eternity and, by the way, our fulfillment and comfort we would have to entrust it all to Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. And until a proud heart is sufficiently humbled by the sheer grace of God through the knowledge of the person's true condition before God, they won't bow. They have Moses and the prophets. What a statement. They have Moses and the prophets. Listen, by the way, that is proof that the Old Testament was clear. Can I just say that? Any theological system that says the Jews were clueless because in the Old Testament nothing became clear till we had the key of the New Testament, hello? I'm sorry, that's not the case. This guy's held responsible for understanding the salvation of God through the Messiah by reading the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. That's right. You're going to have to think that through if you've been a part of a theological system that says we don't knew nothing until the New Testament came along. Sorry. The Old Testament was clear. In fact, is the foundation. You don't read the New Testament back as a key into the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament as the foundation and depth and profound base for everything that was further revealed in the New Testament. That is the proper way to read Scripture. Forward, not backward. So, so clear. It's the very reason, by the way, in Luke 24, when the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were visited by the Lord Jesus, and they said, we don't know what's going on. And he said, what do you mean you don't know what's going on? And he rebuked them for not knowing that the Messiah would have to come, and he'd have to die, Isaiah 53, and he'd have to rise again, and, and he would be the Redeemer, the strong arm of the Lord. He rebuked them. You should have known from reading Moses and the prophets. You should have known. And he went through the Old Testament and showed them what they were slow of heart to what? Not to understand, slow of heart to believe, which would have led to understanding. Notice he says, "Let they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I love that. The form of this verb here, it's, it's, it's what we like to call an effective uh, past activity or aorist tense. It means, you could translate it this way, actually hear them, let them actually hear them so as to receive in their heart and entrust themselves to what the prophets say. I mean, they have Moses and the prophets, let them entrust themselves to the words of the prophets. That's right, because the prophet received the word of God in his mind and he spoke it exactly as God had given it. That was a supernatural revelation. Just trust that, just trust it. Believe it. He's not telling them to merely learn what the prophet said. They already knew that. He's saying, let them hear effectively what the prophets say by trusting in it. Again, it's, it's proof, beloved, that the Old Testament contained all that was necessary to know the way of salvation in anticipation of the Messiah coming, who would be the savior of sinners. John chapter 5, verse 46, here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me. That's right. 
not every verse in the Old Testament you're going to find, you'll never find the word Jesus there. You'll find forms of the Old Testament word for salvation that became eventually uh, Jesus as a name of the Savior. But you won't find the name Jesus. You certainly won't find Jesus of Nazareth in the Old Testament. You'll find his birthplace prophesied. But, oh, you read the Old Testament, even the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and you know there's a Savior coming. In fact, right out of the gate, Genesis 3.15, there will be one who will come from the woman. I love that. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. So, just, just do the basic moral math here. Why is this guy in hell? Why is he ended up in a Christless eternity without God and without hope? And, and without relief, by the way, from the torment of his own conscience and the everlasting pain of burning in judgment. Why? Well, it isn't because he didn't have compassion, though the compassion was a reflection of his heart. It's because of his lack of compassion revealed in his ultimate love of himself rather than the things of God. He didn't care about anybody else because he didn't care about God and the truth of God and what God calls people to in the love of God and the love of others. And he wasn't in hell because he had resources and enjoyed them. It was because he trusted in those things as though they were the pinnacle, as though they were able to satisfy the human heart rather than be fulfilled in our great God. <laughs> Notice, no Father Abraham... <laughs> You say, well, what's the big deal there? He's just crying out in sorrow. Oh, no. No, he's crying out still in unbelief and presumption. No, Father Abraham. And he says, but. That's the strongest contrasting adversative in the Greek. No, you're on the contrary to what you say. That's what he said. No, Father Abraham. It's contrary to what you're saying. What I'm about to present to you is a case that will be contra contrary to what you just said. Are you kidding me? This is Abraham in paradise where God is speaking truth. Sorry, there's a great chasm fixed. I think it's kind of ironic that he actually didn't dispute that. Oh, I can't go there? Okay, then send somebody to my brothers. Well, why were you willing to believe what Abraham said about a chasm fixed that can't be bridged, but here you're going to dispute what he says about evidence? If he just presents some evidence to them. No, this guy is still unbelieving and presumptuous according to the Jesus unfolding story. He refuses to acknowledge the rebellion of the human heart. Therein lies the issue. People go to judgment because they refuse to acknowledge Christ as the one they need to cover their sin. And so he presents a case. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, notice this, they will repent. As if to say, had I seen enough evidence, I would have repented. Beloved, that is a backhanded blaming of God for his circumstances. You didn't show me enough. You didn't give me enough. You didn't convince me enough to believe you and what you said, that you're sovereign, that, that you're judge of the universe, that you offer salvation in Jesus. I don't want to come to Jesus. I don't want to believe in Jesus. I don't want to acknowledge my sin. You know what I want to do? I want to live this life any way I want, with impunity, doing anything I want with no consequences, and if you're any kind of God, you'll wink at it and accept me in the end. Because why wouldn't you want someone like me to have an eternity getting everything I want that's what he's saying. Indirectly, he's blaming God. If you just send enough evidence to my brothers, which would have been enough evidence for me, they'll repent. Repentance, beloved, does not come by human convincing. It doesn't. This guy imagines 
that while his unrepentant brothers, I mean, this is what he imagines. His unrepentant brothers are, are whooping it up in their lives, living for themselves, loving this world just like he did. And then suddenly Lazarus comes back from the dead, this destitute beggar, which they themselves had seen visiting their brother's estate by implication, and they'd seen him at the gate, that they're suddenly going to turn from their love of today's sin and listen to all he has to say about what's to come. Really, so they rejected all of Moses and all of the prophets in the line of the greatest prophet, Moses. They rejected everything God has ever said, every proof he's ever given has really not shocked them or defibrillated their heart enough to look at themselves and their condition. Moses and the prophets also spoke about events that were about to come and long before they came and they were accurate when they happened, God is clearly telling the past or telling the future before it happens, that was evidence enough. They'd read that and read that and read that and dismissed it and dismissed it. No, you know, if Lazarus came back from the dead, here's what they'd say in a heartbeat. How do we know you were really dead, Lazarus? I mean, I'm not sure, you know. Same things they said about Jesus' resurrection. Well, maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe he was just sort of knocked out. What proof do you have that can verify to our requirements that it actually happened, that you actually were expired and in the afterlife and came back from it by some divine power? And then if he could prove that he was dead and he came back by, by some miraculous means, why would they say it's from God? Jesus himself did miracles that couldn't be denied and they said, yeah, you do these things by the power of evil, by Satan's power. In Matthew chapter 12, just one of the most remarkable accounts, and our time is gone, but I can't resist having you look here for a moment. Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And what, he, what, he, what they're asking for, the word sign in your translation doesn't merely mean some pointer. It, it means a pointer that actually verifies a message. We, we called them attesting miracles. A miracle, a display of power that actually attests to something. Look, if what you're saying is true, give us a sign that actually verifies it and proves it. And he answered, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. That's so true. Uh, just do one more. Just show us one more work. You know, they did the same thing. Just hold your finger right there. But they did the same thing at one point when Jesus had, had fed thousands of people on a hillside out of a single lunch. And they came back the next day and they said, you know, we're back. And he said, I am the bread. And if you eat the bread that I give, you won't hunger again. And they said, give us that bread. And he said, you're already missing the point. You're looking for some earthly lunch to satisfy your poverty and secure you for the future. I am not making physical welfare here. I made that lunch to shock you and make you listen to my message that I'm the bread. Don't look for physical bread. Come to me. Ingest me, take me into your life, and you will never spiritually hunger. See, see, what they wanted was another, you know what they said? Uh, show us another, so what sign do you do that shows us that you're the bread? I just fed thousands of people from a single lunch. What more do you need? Well, it's just not enough, you know? I don't know how that happened. I wasn't over the basket. I wasn't watching. Maybe you had a hole in the ground from which somebody was serving you extra meals and made it look like a miracle. Maybe it was all show. I don't know. Really? You don't know? See, we're always saying it's not enough. Why? Because we're evil and adulterous. We don't want to admit that he is who he says he is because it has implications. And so he said, all right, no sign's going to be given you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And notice verse 41, the men of Nineveh will, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He said, you know what? I'm not going to give you a sign that's even going to prick your attention or maybe save a few of you until, until I'm resurrected. 
Why is he saying that to them when he was doing miracles all over the place? Because they were so hardened of heart that even the miracles he did right in front of them, healing people, they just said, ah, it's just all evil. And so he says, all right, I'll give you a sign, but it's going to happen at my resurrection, and it'll be kind of the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. I'm going to be in the heart of the earth, and then I'm going to raise up. That'll be the sign that might wake some of you up to even consider it. And, of course, you remember later on, God was gracious. Nicodemus was redeemed. And on the first day at the birth of the church, when the Spirit and the inauguration of the New Covenant era came, 3,000 Jews were saved, no doubt many of them Jewish leaders. God was kind. They didn't believe. Jesus came back from the dead. They didn't believe in him. So, back to our story, just to finish it. Verse 31, basically, Abraham says they won't repent. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Oh, how true that is. Listen, there is no greater moment of supernatural display after the creation of the universe than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, killed and raising from the dead by his own authority, by the power of God, and appearing to all kinds of people. And here we are 2,000 years later, and no one has ever been able to disprove it, let alone the arch enemies at the very time when it occurred, who concocted a lie to cover up what was undeniable. Why did they concoct a lie? I don't want to believe it. Why wouldn't you want to believe it if a man coming back from the dead would persuade five brothers? Because it is the word of God and the humbling conviction of what it says, that you need Christ, that you're a sinner, that you have a sin condition. That's what changes the heart. That's, by the way, why we preach the law. People today say, no, you need to preach grace and not the law. Well, how is somebody going to know their condition if you don't preach to them the holy standard of God's truth and the demand on them to obey it right now? It doesn't matter who you are. Even if you're not religious and don't believe the Bible, you are God's creature. You're, you are under obligation to obey his standard of perfection. And if you don't measure up, you've got to run to him for grace. That's why we do that. You might be shocked to know that by the time you get to the end of the world, when Jesus is coming to judge the earth in his second coming, the prophecy of John at the end of the scriptures, the book of Revelation, tells us in chapter 16 that, the, that while the exalted Lamb of God is raining down judgments upon wicked men, they refuse to repent and they know it's God and they know it's the lamb, and they know he's a victor, and they know that he's alive. They even know he's alive, and he's judging them, and they shake their fist at him. Look, no amount of evidence is going to convince anyone if you don't believe what God says. Why? Because you're not assigning the right significance and source to the revelation you're hearing. The only reason you could hear a sermon in God's word and not be crushed that you need Christ is because you do not associate the, the proclamation of scripture with God as its source and you as one that he is bringing under condemnation because you don't know Christ. That's the only reason. It's the only reason you could come. It's not because somebody hasn't convinced you or some philosophical argument isn't enough or you haven't seen a miracle or any of that kind of stuff. It's because when you hear the word of God, you do not assign it the proper source that it is from God and it is saying what is true. Signs and miracles don't save anyone. Isn't it tragic when you think about the wild, charismatic nonsense that goes on with all the alleged miracles and people trusting in some of those things as evidences when there are no evidences at all. Those aren't even real things. And people trust in that, but they won't trust in the word of Scripture. 
And that's because only a humbled heart crushed by the weight of sin against the holy God told to us by the scriptures from God. Only, only a humbled heart in that way finds genuine repentance and faith because they've heard the truth of the hope in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you've been waiting for some evidence or argument, you have no way of controlling circumstances or your own fallen reasoning. You're in bondage to it. You wear the chains, you love the chains. You may not think so, but that's the truth of Scripture. You don't have any guarantee that one day you're going to try to consider these things or one day a convincing proof is going to come up. You don't need that. You have, you have the Scriptures. The Scriptures are a grace. They tell you you need Christ. And they tell you we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith in Christ because he did the work for us. He lived a righteous life we can't live. He offered that to his heavenly father on our behalf and laid his life down in a perfect sacrificial death to satisfy the judgment of God against sin. You put your faith alone in Christ, you are forgiven. It's what the scriptures say. But it can only come by faith. Not by the persuasion of some earthly sign. You'll reject it every time. But the sign should wake you up. Should wake you up. I mean, do your own investigation and pray for mercy during investigating it that you don't breathe your last while you're investigating it. But go before God and pray, Lord, if the resurrection is true, I want to know. The scriptures say it's true. And so I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to turn to the scriptures. I'm going to turn to all that you say about all that is, and I'm going to pray for your mercy. You do that, and your heart will be exposed. Maybe the Lord will be merciful and save you like he did with every one of the rest of us here who are in Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for your kindness in this text. We have these notions that rise up in our minds, and they're just... Not true. Lord, we get them from our fallen human heart. We long to, in our pagan life, have some other way than having to admit who we are before you, utterly condemned and lost. And we can't even bring ourselves to look closely at what your word says because it exposes us. So we try to re rewrite it, redefine it, we try to cast it in terms of, well, it hasn't convinced me yet. Oh, God, there's no way for any of us to be saved if you don't use the sin of our life and the conviction and brokenness by the power of your spirit to see our right condition. You do it with those who've not heard the scriptures taught in specifics, and you do it right here and now under the preaching and proclamation of the truth. You do it through the common grace knowledge that you exist just by looking at all that's created. And yet that can never save anyone because we will always suppress it until we believe what you've said in your word about Christ. So Lord, go forward with your mercy even through a parable like this one. We ask it not for our glory, for our understanding, and for your glory and the advancement of your grace. Amen.